Hello and welcome to the Revenue Architect podcast, where we talk to sales and marketing leaders about the top issues of the day. I'm your host, Arnie Gulov-Singh, and my guest this week is Matt Hicks, VP Global Sales at Matisse. And the reason I think we're going to enjoy hearing from Matt is that he's at the forefront of the outsourced procurement trend that is sweeping SaaS right now, as companies shift from growth at all costs to finding efficiency. Matt, welcome to the pod. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you, Arnie. Thanks very much for having me on. I'm a big fan of the newsletter, so it's very cool for me to have the opportunity to uh, to contribute. Brilliant. Matt, maybe you could kick us off here and talk about Vertice and your role there. Absolutely. So um, Vertice is a, is a startup. We, um, you know, we started a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, um, it was founded by uh, two serial entrepreneurs uh, who are brothers called Roy and Eldar Tubi. They've successfully exited both of their previous SaaS companies for, for significant uh, amounts. Uh, and this uh, problem um, was something that they had encountered themselves. Um, so their first business really started before SaaS had taken off. Everything was was kind of still on premise, um, but they and um, so they they became acutely aware. Like as everything moved from on premise to cloud, there was an increasing uh, inefficiency, and it became more and more challenging to to keep on top of uh, renewals and uh, uplifts and all of those types of things. And that was both uh, being a seller of SaaS, but also uh, significantly increasing the number of SaaS tools. They were licensing themselves um, as a business, so they they felt the pain on on, on both sides, um, and uh, you know decided that they were going to go and and solve that problem. So um, we we describe ourselves as a tech enabled service. So we're not a SaaS platform ourselves. Uh, so we're not telling people, hey, come and buy our SaaS to solve all of your SaaS problems. That would maybe be a bit weird. Um, so we um, we have a uh, a web-based platform which acts as a single source of truth for our customers' uh, software licenses. Um, you know, you can buy new tools, you can approve uh, renewals, you can track usage, um, and all kinds of other cool stuff. Um, but then we also have a team of specialist purchasing managers, uh, and their job is to act as an extension of your team. Uh, and actually go and, uh, you know, buy software on your behalf. Uh, and the reason we, we've adopted that model is because, uh, you know, software buying is, is nuanced. Um, all of the incentives are aligned to the reps at the vendors. And their job is to, to use uh, things like value based selling to try and, uh, you know, establish a, a price which works for them. Uh, but buyers are often left in the dark. You know, people don't, at enterprise level in particular, people don't really know what they should be paying. Obviously, there's, you know, peer groups and WhatsApp groups and Slack communities, but it's, it's not, there's not no real scalable way of knowing what a good price is. So, um, so that's what um, that's why the, the 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 technology plus the service makes uh, makes so much sense here. And our commitment to customers is, you know, get visibility, get that visibility of all your tools, get increased control, uh, but most importantly, in the current market, is is make savings and um, you know drive greater capital efficiency uh, within your uh, within your business. 
um, which is why we've been so popular with investors, um, you know, private equity and venture capitalists, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, pro- you know, providing a lot of uh, introductions to us because they're obviously interested in preserving the the health of their their portfolio companies. Wow, you it's a few things in there I just want to pick up on. Super interesting. First of all, the you're not a SaaS company. You're not saying buy our SaaS to solve your SaaS problems. That's very refreshing because I feel like the number of SaaS tools you need to build a SaaS company is just you know astonishing. My company's 60 people. I think we have like 80 SaaS tools. We do. We just did our systems audit and it's, uh, it's incredible how many tools we have. Um, and it's so easy to like just add another tool. It's like just self serve, put on the credit card, you know. And then the other thing you said about software buying is nuanced and the incentives are aligned to the, to the reps of the vendors. Buyers are really left in the dark on pricing. This really just blows my mind because I think about, if I want to buy a car, I can go to the manufacturer's right. website, put in all the options and get the quote. And it might be like 30 grand. It might be like a hundred grand. I mean, it could be like a really expensive purchase, but I get, like, I get a good idea of the price before I talk to a dealer. And, you know, like, I feel like buyers um, have this sort of reticent to talk to salespeople the same way we have reticence to talk to car salespeople. Because we feel like, um, you know, we're, we're in the dark and there's this asymmetry. So super interesting how you're making it that visible and, and sort of just kind of making that problem, uh, a little bit less painful for customers. And, and so if we kind of think about from the salesperson's perspective, so if I, if I'm selling to somebody and I find out that they're using a platform like Vertice, what advice would you give me as a salesperson on how to deal with that customer? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of reps, uh, their initial knee-jerk reaction to a company like Vertice being involved in their process, maybe introduced uh, late in the process once they kind of feel like they've got their champion brought into buying the tool, uh, can be, it's a little nerve-wracking. And um, so, but what I would advise is, um you know, uh, Vertice is, uh, the way we position ourselves is as a trusted advisor of the customer. Um, you know, we're there to, to help them to make the right choices about technology. Uh, and we, as part of our process of onboarding customers, deeply understand their processes and their technology stack. So we know exactly how they buy. We know all the people who are involved in the approval process. We know, um, what needs to be done. Uh, from a vendor's perspective to get something uh, over the line. So uh, we can give sellers a high degree of certainty that an outcome will take place over a given time horizon. Because at the end of the day, we're just a professional buyer, right? Our job is to is to buy things. Um, so I would say to sales reps, you know, take the time to, to understand um, the third party buyer that's been introduced to the process that, that there is nuances and there's differences between how, uh, Vertice and other players in our market operate. But, uh, we are uh, a champion of the buyer. We don't have any relation, commercial relationships with the vendors whatsoever. So we're not colluding with vendors to fix pricing or take margin or anything of that nature. But we do want to be an enabler to make the transaction happen. Uh, going back to something you just just said there, like in all mature markets, typically you have some form of price aggregation or price comparison. And I, I just see 
um, Vertice and, and others like Vertice as a, you know, the SaaS industry is, is growing up and uh, intermediaries are coming in to make it fairer uh, and to make transactions happen more efficiently. Um, so, you know, we, we can coach sellers on how to make, uh, how to make things happen. Uh, the one thing we are going to do is we're going to try and establish the true floor pricing. So if uh, a vendor has provided a quote to our customer and we know that uh, from our benchmark data that there is um, customers elsewhere who have uh, licensed the same SKUs for a significantly lower price, we're going to go straight back to the vendor and, and say, um, our client's not going to be very happy if this is the, the quote you put in front of them. And, and normally very quickly, uh, the vendor comes back with a much lower price. So, right. you know, we cut the, the BS out of the process and we cut that kind of murky, uh, opaque kind of, you feel like you're in a sales, um, process and rather than to, um, you know, two counterparties trying to work together to solve a problem, which I think, um, is, 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 is what people really want. Um, so yeah, that's the um we just want to get a fair a fair price really. That's 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 the the, the thing they should should know in advance is that we're just there to get a, get, get a fair price. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a maybe it's a myth that a company like Vertice uh has to get more discount than you've offered to the or has to get a further discount in order to justify their role to their customer. And so salespeople think, "Oh, should I give the champion the best price?" Um, knowing that, you know, Vertice is going to want to show that they've done their work. Cause if we just think about like procurement teams inside of big companies, that's generally what, you know, they're judged on. Um, if, if it's not, if it's not an outsourced function. And so curious if, you know, what's your point of view there? Like how do clients kind of evaluate you? We tried to not get too concerned about like individual transactions. And if we think that the customer has been offered a fair price by the vendor, we'll just tell them. Or if they've already done a great job negotiating and we think they've already got uh, the, the, you know, reached the true floor, then we'll just let them know. Uh, we're not there to like beat the vendor up and like impact the relationship. In fact, we want to do the opposite. We want to uh, make the relationship stronger by making the transaction more efficient. Um, so, you know, maybe... Uh, fast forward um, into the future, if um, you know platforms like Vertice become ubiquitous, then uh, SaaS vendors will have to change the way they operate and make their pricing fairer and more mm-hmm. transparent and more usage orientated. And then, um, I guess the the SaaS buying slash price benchmarking element of our service, uh, the value of that becomes diluted. And, and, you know, we, we start to, 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 you know, we've got, you know, lots of other functions and, uh, functionality that we're working on, such as, you know, I think a big one for the remainder of this year is going to be, um, continuous clouds optimization, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, getting, uh, your AWS or your Azure or your GCP spend under control. Uh, you know, I'm in, reading an increasing number of articles that people are bringing some of their uh, compute back on premise because, you know, they're just getting right. screwed on their, oh. uh, on their cloud bill. So, you know, we want to be, um, seen as a, a technology partner at this moment in time, you know, negotiating and right sizing SaaS contracts is, is it, it's, it's, it's just a good time to be in that business because oh. everybody is, is cutting costs and rationalizing, but, um, you know, we don't want to be, uh, 
uh, a one trick pony because obviously if you achieve that mission then um, the market will change for the better right it's almost like a self-regulating mechanism that yeah. helps um you know helps the market to function more more fairly um so yeah yeah and you you mentioned um you kind of described what he says, <clears throat> we go and buy software on your behalf, which I thought was a really good way of framing it. I'm wondering, do you see um, the evolution of this industry being like a champion really likes a uh, product, but the Vertice or someone like Vertice will go out and say, there's three other, four other companies will go and see what, what else they can do. Yeah. Do, you, do, do you do that today or is yeah. it a plan to do that? Yeah, 100%. We do that today. Um, you know, uh, if our, our customers want to buy a new tool, as there's a couple of ways it, it normally happens. Firstly, if they really trust us and they really like us, um, they'll just describe the problem they're trying to solve. Um, or the, the, the department head will describe the problem they're trying to solve and we'll say, Oh, you should look at these tools or this category of tools. Uh, often, uh, they'll come to us and say, Hey, you know, we've got a new, VP sales, he wants to buy a conversation intelligence tool, and uh, he has a pretty good idea about which one he wants to buy. Um, and in, in those scenarios, we'll, we'll kind of run sort of, you know, I guess like mini RFP processes to like uh, go and find comparable solutions and make sure that we're getting a, uh, a, fair, a fair price. But ultimately, you know, we'll let people, we'll let our clients know who the best in class vendor is, um, you know, and um, there is plans to aggregate data from third parties, uh, such as reviews and um, uh, other insights uh, that are provided by uh, community based platforms so that, you know, uh, our customers can understand uh the market sentiment towards a vendor because uh, that's like very important right lots of our clients they they often don't they don't want the cheap most people don't want the cheapest uh vendor they want something that works really well and it's going right. to help automate um something within their department so so yes we we would we would typically do that on a on a new purchase unfortunately everybody wants the best vendor at the cheapest price these days yeah. so it's like yeah. interesting a- i had a, one customer say to me uh this week he said hey matt i i don't want to be uh i don't want to be like as a, a a customer of my vendor that pays a super low price because i don't want a super low service right and mm-hmm. no matter what anybody says um you know if you're if you're not paying um uh you know what you should be paying then you know maybe your service levels will will suffer right so for yeah for businesses, you know a lot of these SaaS tools are like absolutely critical business infrastructure and some of our customers they, they don't want to be paying the the floor they want to be paying a fair price uh, and that's something that we will try and establish quite quickly um with our customers so that we understand that you know um, if they're not like super price sensitive, maybe they just want protections. So they want to take out things like auto renews or uplifts or overages. Um, and, you know, again, because of our, uh, the collective wisdom, uh, and the network effects that a platform like ours have, we can say, Hey, when we're negotiating with vendor A, 
typically we see um, clauses uh, 12.4, 12.5, and 12.7 redlined uh, because they're a little onerous and uh, they're a little unfair, right? So we can also short circuit the due diligence process um, by um, uh, by you know by ensuring that you know the lawyers and the general counsels that our customers are not just duplicating the same process that everyone else has already been through. So right. that's a cool, a cool piece of functionality that we released um, just this week. Yeah, it's kind of wasteful how everybody kind of still comes up with their own terms. You know, I I came out of the um, media business into SaaS, uh, so selling advertising, and just everyone uses the same terms, uh, like mm-hmm. an industry standard terms as an industry body, and there's just like no redlining. Basically, you yeah. you just say we're using uh, IAB standard terms, inter- interactive advertising bureau standard terms. You know, Bosch easy uh the buyer doesn't have to get their legal involved uh, is very straightforward whereas mm-hmm. in the current environment SaaS, it's sort of like oh you know try and get them to use online terms so that they don't redline them like there's all these games going on mm-hmm. or like hold the line and don't negotiate terms below like 20k or 10k whatever number you want you know and it's just it's very inefficient um and the amount of time you know like if you think about sales process the number of the time deal spend in trade you know like once mm-hmm. the verbal you got the verbal it's just way too long it should you know for especially these transactional price points like under 25k it's it shouldn't there shouldn't be this much back and forth it's very inefficient so it's really interesting to say he's saying that and then actually you mentioned something interesting there about um people want to take out auto renewal clauses and this is always like a you know a this is like two sides to it. The, obviously, the buyer's like, I don't want to accidentally auto-renew something I don't like. And the mm-hmm. seller's like, I don't want to have to go through this whole like, you know, song and dance every year um, to ensure, you know, to, because it costs me money. And so I just wonder like, where, where do you see that kind of ending up? Like, where, where, do you, where do you see that kind of playing out? Yeah. Uh, so I guess like as a intermediary, we want to take some of those problems away from both the vendor and the buyer by, um, when you upload all of the contract data to Vertice's platform, we create smart notifications. So if there is, uh, let's say an ERP, which is like, you know, replacing an ERP, someone described it as like, it's like having spinal surgery, right? Like you don't just, uh, replace your ERP like with one month's, uh, notice. It's got a, it's got a, it's going to be like a six to 12 month project. So we'll put a smart notification out to, let's say a CFO to say, Hey, NetSuite is going to be renewing in six months. How, how are you feeling about it? You know? Um, and that will give plenty of time to introduce competitive pressure and things of that nature. Um, and then in terms of, um, yeah, uh, the question uh, you asked directly around uh, auto-renew, I think like we're now in a world where um, cash runway is like part of the priority and people want the ability to be flexible um you know and that that works both ways so like if you're really happy with a vendor one of the ways in which we can achieve the best pricing is by renewing early and locking in a long-term uh contract right you know vendors love that because it gives them predictability and arr and uh you know nrr and all these SAS metrics that everyone's familiar with so you've got to think about what the priorities are for both parties because successful negotiating is about getting a win-win. Um, so yeah, we hope to automate and take away some of the pains around 
things like auto renew and auto uplift and you know one of the crazy things that i've come to realize since i joined vertis last year is like you know the pricing inflation within the SaaS industry is ludicrous it's like you know way way higher than uh standard market inflation and of course that part of that is software is becoming more um important to every business but um you know the vendor's ability to like hike their rates like year after year i think you know the the, the sentiment that we're hearing in the market from our customers is like the you know people aren't happy uh about that uh and they want it to be fair and and, and proportionate to to the market um so uh yeah that's been that's been interesting uh certainly yeah i the, a lot of it's overpriced i mean i i see a lot of the sales tech and martech given my role and uh there's so much innovation now opportunity to replace some of these tools at half the cost or a third of the cost that i think uh, a lot of these bigger companies that they'll they'll be fine selling to bigger companies but the the startups will stop buying from the zoom infos and the sales lofts and the outreaches of the world like this com- those companies themselves have become so big um yeah. you know there's there are very few tools that you absolutely must have like you pretty much need to have sales navigator but Sales Navigator, they don't take the piss. Like the pricing is not, not, you know, ridiculous. LinkedIn's, LinkedIn's actually pretty reasonable, but I think some of these other tools, it's really, um, really, really, uh, uh, yeah, a bit ludicrous. You know, um, one thing that, uh, we said right at the top was, you know, as a salesperson, you, you know, you, you run into a Vertice or some similar kind of service late in the sales process. And, and, um, this is very common. I've seen this a lot in my team and other teams I've talked to. And it seems like the champion doesn't actually know that their company is mm-hmm. using Vertice. And so, you know, how, what, what is your, you mentioned relationship with a trusted advisor and, and a platform. And I get all that, but like, how do you educate your clients that, um, you exist and, uh, you know, when to bring you in? Um, cause it does really feel like it's very late. And I think part of it is because, you know, there's, you mentioned also this asymmetry between buying and selling software, like a seller sells software every day, a buyer buys software once every two years. And so, um, they don't know how to do it. And, and so, you know, how do you kind of see that problem, um, today and and maybe playing out? Yeah. Super, super interesting question. And it's something that we're, we're still working out as a, as a relatively new business. So I'm not going to say that I'm going to give a perfect answer here, but, um, it's frustrating for everybody involved when somebody new is brought in late in the process. It's like you say, I've sold to larger companies. It's like you're anticipating the procurement guys coming for their pound of flesh right at the end of the process. So, and I think that's, you know, that's now going to become more common with, with smaller companies who, who maybe don't have in-house procurement, but they, they use a, a partner like, like Vertice. But. Um, we endeavor to inform all contract owners and by contract owners, uh, the way we define that is like a, a department head who has budget. And, you know, um, if you were the head of sales of your company, you would be, um, you would be responsible for, uh, contracts to the CRM, for example, or the data enrichment contracts. Um, so we, when we onboard a client, we try to get all of the contract owners. And the folks, uh, the stakeholders in finance and typically some stakeholders in IT who would be responsible, um, for approving, um, the onboarding of new tools, uh, either from a budgetary perspective or, a, you know, a security and 
uh, technology perspective, and we would advise them about um, you know how 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 we're going to work with them. And what we tried to do is digitize their existing process. So if their existing process is contract uh, owner or the department head wants to buy a tool, they've got budget for it, then they need anything above a certain threshold, they've got to go to the CFO. So we'll digitize those workflows within Vertice so that, you know, your average uh, sort of leader within the company department head, you don't need to be logging into Vertice all the time to check stuff. You're just going to get emails to say, hey, one of your tools is renewing and this is what you need to do. Um, and equally, the IT guy or the finance guy doesn't need to be copied to thousands of emails. They just get an email when it's time to approve the contract and they'll see, you know, the process that has been followed in order to to get to that sort of best and final offer. So hopefully we're taking a lot of work off people's plates mm. by automating a lot of this back and forth. Often it's done, you know, over email or people are using Jira or ticketing systems to, 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 to run, um, you know, kind of a, uh partially digital process um so yeah that's um that's what we would try to do it should never be a complete surprise uh to a contract owner uh that vertice is involved but it, you know it does happen people are moving uh jobs and you get new people who men might not be aware but um sounds so- like um sounds like you really getting into the contract lifecycle management space a little bit as well is that something that you see yeah, yeah. Look, that, that definitely. Um, it's uh, um, we, you know, we. Time is your friend uh, when you're trying to negotiate a good deal, um, and we always advise our clients like the more time and the more visibility you give us, uh, the the greater our ability to generate leverage and get the best mm. outcomes for you. Um, so the sooner we can get um, uh, access to a new purchase or, you know, get on the front foot with a renewal, generally the better outcome we can drive. If we're introduced too late, we're not even going to be able to do a good job anyway. Um, But yeah, the, um, a lot of our clients want, you know, uh, one of the things they really like about the Vertice platform is it's just a single source of truth and a a repository for all of their contracts uh, so that they can find in one place. So you don't have this issue of like, oh, you know, where's the, where's the zoom info contract or, you know, where's the Figma contract and it's some product person's got it in right. an email. Right. It's just all in one place. Right. It sounds simple, but it's, you know, it's those often the simple. Yeah. Features. It, it's super oh. interesting because I'd never, it, just until we started talking, I hadn't really joined the dots. You know, there's a whole bunch of companies trying to do contract lifecycle management and have done for a long time. It's not like a new, new industry, um, but it's been like a very slow growing space. And I think it's because they didn't approach it from a business problem. They approached it from a time savings standpoint, which is never as exciting as a cost savings. Mm. And they're selling into the GC versus selling, I guess you're selling into the CFO. And, and so, you know, like the value prop of someone like Vertice is much more, much clearer and more immediate than the value prop of like an ironclad or a, um, you know, DocuSign's got something similar. Um, there's a few companies in that space. So it's super interesting. I can see that, you know, a CFO would say, why don't we move all our contracts, not just our SaaS contracts, you know, over to this same kind of platform. If, if we get visibility into terms and to outliers and things like that and benchmarks becomes a lot more valuable than saying, this is just a way to route a contract around for redlining. So very, very interesting. 
Yeah. The, the other thing that we tried to do is, um, I guess, uh, you know, there's, there's often like tension between finance teams and, and department heads, right? I know that there was, uh, for me and previous companies, cause I, I have these huge revenue targets I've got to hit. So I go in there, hold a gun to their head and say, I need these tools and I need them now. Otherwise I'm, I'm never going to hit my, my number. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, famously, Engineering and uh, technology leaders uh, have a bunch of tools and finance have no idea what any of these tools do. They just yeah. see the money going, going out of the account. So one of the things that we we do do is we give our clients the ability to track the utilization of contracts. So, you know, I buy loads of SaaS for my sales team, but it's, you know, um, and it's sales leaders and marketing leaders are, are the worst defenders for this for sure. It's chronically underutilized. You know, so they've got a hundred licenses for, uh, you know, whatever tool they have, but like only 15 of them are like active in the last 30 days. And the way we achieve that insight is, um, using integrations to IDP providers. So things like Opta, um, and, 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 you know, many others, um, to, uh, use that as a proxy to show mm. like you bought this tool and you've got all of these seats and it's super expensive, but like. What? I've got to ask you, what are the, some of the tools that are underutilized? If you don't want to name names, name categories. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I always think it's important to remain impartial because, um, you know, we don't want to like name and shame, uh, companies and, you know, we've done a great job when both the buyer and the, and the seller say thank you to Vertice. That's like kind of one of our kind of things that we try mm. to, like, if you get both parts to say thank you, then you, you know, you're doing a good job, but like, sales and marketing tools are chronically underutilized. Uh, we just published a sales software buying report, uh, which, you know, uh, distills a lot of the insights that we, we have. So, um, happy to, happy to ping that to you, which, and, and that does, uh, uh, name specific vendors. So, oh, cool. Share. Yeah. I'll link to it from the post. We can yeah. chat about it afterwards. That's brilliant. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I see in my small company, I've been in companies before. Um, but I think, you know, if you go back 10 years, it wasn't as prevalent because it is a higher bar to like getting a tool inside a company here. You, you know, you, you couldn't just, um, there was no PLG really. You, you couldn't just sort of go and go and buy something. But now, you know, the idea of shadow IT, like right. the IT team doesn't even know what's going on. I think maybe that's clamped down a bit because of uh, privacy and like companies have just set a tone that like, you got a, any tool you want to use, you need to fill out a vendor request form. Everyone needs to know about it. And then, you know, the, the kind of threat of danger of breaches, you know, people are mindful, but still, yeah, there's a, you know, there's the tools that people buy and then they leave. And then the new person comes and buys a different tool, but they don't cancel the old tool. And right. yeah, there's a lot of inefficiency. Um, I think it's getting squeezed out now because like you said, the, the shift from growth to efficiency, you know, like CFOs suddenly showing up and saying, I want 25% off everything. You know, it's like, right. that's my starting point. And be like, okay, you know. Um, and so they're probably also looking at, looking at this more closer, but you're right. Just like figuring out who's using what in a, you know, if you've got a 300 person company, you don't know somebody's thinks this thing's mission critical. Somebody else thinks it's a waste of time. So you've seen that, see that quite often. Right. Um, you like, uh, switch gears a little bit here. Like, uh, you know, looking at your background, you, you built a really successful career selling financial services. 
um, mm-hmm. to startups. How did you get into that space? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I, um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm uh, kind of a, you know, self-confessed uh, sort of fintech nerd. I've worked for a bunch of fintech startups, you know, in that kind of first wave of fintechs after the Lehman uh, crisis in 2008. Um, so initially selling um, financial products to small businesses and then later uh, equity crowdfunding, uh, which was a super exciting uh, segment at the time, uh, has since kind of evolved a little bit. Um, and then joined uh, the Kodak uh, founding team. Uh, Kodak was uh, an aggregated API provider with some of the people I worked with at um, my first job in fintech. And all we were doing um, was taking something that had made um, uh, the process for our customers way more efficient and licensing it as a platform because we thought every other bank and financial services company is going to need this uh, at some point. So I guess like all of the moves I've made have always been because of like the experience I had in my previous role and kind of trying to leverage that experience in a in a new environment. And uh, Vertis is very similar. You know, I saw Kodak go from, you know, three people, uh, four people to, you know, 300 people in a very short period of time. We raised hundreds of millions of dollars and we, um, you know, obviously we grew revenue, but we, you know, significantly increased cost um, of, you know, software and headcount went through the roof. It was in a time where, you know, we were pandemic and interest rates were very low. So it was kind of crazy. And like the amount, the, the wastage, um, uh, but also like, you know, having sold SaaS and sold uh, products where pricing isn't always like, um completely transparent you know it's part of the job which maybe i didn't always feel like super comfortable about like i I'm, i try to be like very honest with my customers and like solve problems for them and be someone who they trust and not try and sort of um get one over on them in the in the in the negotiation so i wanted to solve the problem and um you know the 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 there was a big draw in coming and working for two serial entrepreneurs uh you know who are you know very experienced guys that was a big pull factor as well but like trying to solve this problem to make uh the market a fair and more transparent place was also a big motivator for me outside of you know any financial gain um so yeah that's kind of how i how i ended up doing it yeah i think it's always great when you sort of build your career based on something you learned in your previous job because it just gives you a vision for what you want to do in the right. new thing you like you see the problem really clearly you see the solution quite clearly and like you can have an opinion especially in a leadership role like you're in i think that's yeah. so important um you also i think describe yourself as a servant leader is that right yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. how does that how does servant leadership influence the way you uh lead a sales team yeah yeah no it's uh something that i take uh pretty seriously so you know i've been a rep for for most of my career so you know an individual contributor um you know who um i was incentivized to be to be selfish and 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 to 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 go and uh maximize uh you know the uh my own success and then i i switched to, to leadership um would have been you know six years ago now maybe and I quickly realized that, you know, you have to switch from being selfish to being selfless. 
Um, and, you know, I'm, I guess I'm reasonably, reasonably young uh, leader. So I, you know, and I'm used to managing people who are older and sometimes more experienced than me. And um, I wanted to make it clear that, you know, I, I don't like it when people refer to me as their boss, like it's kind of cringeworthy. I, I, I try to be like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a peer. I'm just in a, in a leadership position because I, I know a lot about this uh, particular problem or this particular challenge. And, um, I think servant leadership originally, uh, originated in the military, if I'm not mistaken, where, uh, you know, the, the, the leaders and the officers there, they serve their, their, their units and their regiments. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of think about my role in a similar way, right? Like, um, I give people the opportunity to to work here. If I've hired them, I'm going to make a uh, an investment in developing them and training them and giving them everything they need to to be successful in their role. And um, you know that uh, means removing blockers. Um, and I think when you position it in that way with people, you create a safe space where they can talk not just about what's going well for them, but what's not going well. And my most productive conversations with my team are always. Uh, when we talk about things which aren't going well because then we can we can fix them right so um so yeah that's kind of like the way i think about it i think it's you know 2023 and people don't really respond well to being told what to do uh, so i try to not tell people what to do and treat people like adults and just yeah. provide guidance and um you know advice to help people to to succeed yeah i think it's always a fine line between uh telling someone what to do and making them feel like it was their idea and they're in control of it. So I think different people need different levels of guidance. Some people you can say, you know, go run, uh, go run ahead. And they'll say, I know exactly how to do, how to do that. So other person you might have to say, go run ahead by like taking this route. And then someone else you might have to say, go run ahead, take this route and make these stops along the way. You know, like you have to just give different people different levels of of um guidance i think in in sales and in SaaS, like a lot of the a lot of the kind of literature is about like one process fits all people uh one set of skills everyone doing the same thing but you know as you're sure your buyers your clients will tell you like it's very frustrating when you just get thrown into this linear process mm-hmm. and i think you know it's, everybody's everybody's got different strengths um and, you know, ultimately a salesperson needs to find a way that works for them to, to be successful. Like, you know, if you watch football, everyone doesn't play the same way on the, even on the same team, they've all got different skills, but, you know, collectively they do, they can be successful. And I think it's, you know, it's very, it's very, um, it's very similar. And also I, I, I really love servant leadership too. Um, when I, uh, my first CRO role, uh, my boss was the founder, um, and, uh, she drew the org chart upside down. And that really, for me, kind of, um, encapsulated servant leadership. And we would put like our customers were at the top of the org chart. And then our frontline uh, in, in individual contributors would be the next level and then the managers. And then, you know, for me, being a CRO, like I was at the bottom of my org and I was thought about, okay, the balls are going to, you know, come through that, that, that chart. Some the team hopefully catches them all, but the ones that drop, it's my job to catch them and figure out why, and then go back and and try and and fix it. And um, yeah, that always stuck with me. And when I think about leading, 
a very similar way to you. So, um, yeah, really good to talk about that because, you know, a lot of sales people, a lot of sales culture is like lead from the front, you know, be like yeah. me. And I think it's really, it's really unhealthy. Like a, 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 a VP of sales or a sales, a CRO, whatever, who sold five years ago, they're out of touch with yeah. um, the reality of being a salesperson in 2023. And so they're just always going to pattern match to what worked for them um, five years ago. And like you said, things change. Like Vertice didn't exist five years ago. So how could a VP of sales today possibly have a pattern to match against of how to deal with a, you know, outsourced procurement company? Right. Last question I got for you. I, I love to ask all sales leaders this is how do you generate leads? Like how do you think about lead generation? What strategies work best for you over the years? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's top of mind every day uh, for us. And I think one of the things about my style of leadership is that um, I take responsibility for pipeline generation myself alongside every single member of my team. Um, so, look, obviously, we partner closely with marketing to try and generate demand and get a nice flow of um, warm leads coming from marketing. But it's difficult in the current climate and, we're you know, we're still small. So, and, you know, our, this type of sale, given the, the, the service uh, element of it, it's, it's, lo- it's driven by relationships and it's driven by the, your counterparty's belief that you're going to do an, a great job for them and you're going to be a great partner for them. So, and I really like that type of sale where it's not about, you know, what features do you have and what, you know, bells and whistles can we add? And that's going to be how someone makes the decision. It's really like, do I trust you or the other guy is going to do a better job for me? Because that's inside my control. Um, so how do we do prospecting? Well, um, yeah, look, I, I carve out time to do uh, prospecting every day, even as a VP uh, of sales. You know, it's much easier for me than it is for my BDRs because I have a network, right? Like, why would I waste uh, that big network that I've built over the years and call in favors from all of those people that I've met and asked for warm intros so it, prospecting in many ways it's a lot easier for me than for for my BDRs. so i don't know why uh i wouldn't do it so you know i set myself personal goals and we all hold each other to account for generating opportunities um but look it's um in terms of practical advice for your audience i think everybody's buyer just became the cfo it was always our buyer but now everybody's pitching the cfo so it's super noisy everybody's got outreach and sales laughs. So the whole market is getting carpet bombed by, by reps and it's becoming very, very difficult to cut through the noise. So we've decided to take a slightly different strategy and engage with uh, shareholders. Um, so we, we speak uh, with companies, shareholders uh, who obviously have a vested interest in that organization being capital efficient. And we look to get introductions via shareholders who aren't being pitched by thousands of vendors, um, unlike CFOs. And then we get our, our meetings that way. And that, that's been like an, an extremely effective strategy for us. Yeah. Go for the person that's got the most to gain and the most yeah. to lose. <laughs> It's just absolutely. absolutely the shareholders plus economies there of scale, like one person, one shareholder, usually a shareholder in multiple companies. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for telling us about Vertice and about your journey. Thanks very much, Johnny. I've really enjoyed it.